If you are looking to elevate your leadership and drive your nonprofit forward, I invite you to subscribe to the Successful Nonprofits newsletter. Every week, I curate exclusive shareworthy content that sparks inspiration, innovation, and conversation. From the latest trends to timeless advice, the weekly email newsletter is your all-access pass to a treasure trove of resources. But receiving the newsletter is not just about staying informed. It's also about getting our best content first. Subscribers get first access to our newest downloadable templates designed to propel your leadership and amplify your impact. And that's not all, my friend. We are constantly working on new ways to support you and your mission. So as a subscriber, you'll get updates on our latest projects, opportunities to participate in surveys, and a say in the topics that we tackle next. You will essentially get me as a consultant, coach, and confidant in your inbox, ready to help you navigate the challenges of nonprofit leadership. So if you're an executive director, board chair, or a nonprofit leader who believes in making a difference, join me as a newsletter subscriber. Visit SuccessfulNonprofits.com forward slash newsletter to sign up today. And now, friend, let me take you to the episode you've downloaded. Welcome to the Successful Nonprofits Podcast. I'm your host, Dolph Goldenberg, and listeners... We are going to be joined today by Jay Johnson of the Coeus Creative Group, and we're going to have a great conversation about dealing with and understanding difficult personalities. Before we do, let me just remind you, fall is right around the corner. The vast majority of nonprofits' fiscal years kind of mirror the calendar year. So you're probably thinking right now about your budget for next year. And a lot of organizations are probably also thinking about strategic planning. So if you're thinking about strategic planning and your budget for next year, now is a great time for us to have a conversation. So you just look me up. I'm easy to find or go to SuccessfulNonprofits.com and we will have that conversation. And now let me share with you why I wanted to get Jay Johnson on this podcast. Over the course of our lives and over the course of our careers, we all run in to difficult personalities. Maybe it's a board member, maybe it's a family member, maybe it's a boss, maybe it's a colleague. And you know, if you're a manager, you might have even run into some people that you're technically managing, but gosh, they just seem like such a tough personality. And, and I'm sure Jay and I are going to talk about this, but if you don't ever run into difficult personalities, well, then you're... You're the difficult personality. Sorry, just got to tell you, you're the difficult personality. But I do know that this is something that a lot of people run into and they just kind of sputter. It is difficult when you head into a difficult personality in meetings or just an everyday interaction. And so we looked far and wide and we found Jay Johnson. He is the founder of Coeus Creative Group. And I have to share with you, they've got a great motto. Their motto is to behave intelligently. And that is because both Jay and his company help people and organizations explain their behavior, explain their past behavior, their current behavior, and oh my gosh, even predict future behavior. He has been so successful at this that he's uh, been a TEDx speaker. He's also spoken in a number of other places. And I just have to share with you that if 
whether you have a difficult personality in your life right now or in your work life right now, and you're like, oh, I just need some coaching on this, or you know that you're going to run into one again, this is a great podcast episode for you. Hey, Jay, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Dolph. Love this show. Thank you so much for having me on it. I, I am so excited and thrilled that you are on it. And I know before we hit record and we were talking, you had shared with me a little bit about a local leadership organization that you got involved with. Yeah. So I have been a member of the Junior Chamber International, also known as the JCs, uh, since about 2009. And uh, it's been one of the organizations. So I, I've given a lot of time and energy to service uh, to my community and to the larger community through the JCs. And it has honestly just been a transformational experience. And I kind of go back to that 2009, right when I joined one of the first projects that I ended up taking on. I didn't know anything about what I was doing. I honestly, I joined for a business focus. I had just launched my business, but I was put into this place where I was going to run one of the important projects called the Children's Shopping Tour. And this was where we raised money and then we took families that were in need and took them out and did Christmas shopping. We had the kids do the Christmas shopping for the families while we secretly did Christmas shopping for the kids. It's just a really great experience. So uh, that I had no interest in. I had no idea I wasn't going to have an interest in it. Uh, but they said, hey, can you do this? We'll see. We'll see how you feel about it. So we raise, I ended up raising $1,500. And to take care of a family, it was about $300 per family. We had nine families apply. And if you do the math, obviously, that means four families we were not able to take care of. And I am a competitor. So I was super frustrated. And what I, we ended up getting them placed somewhere else, thankfully, uh, with some churches and some other local groups. But we do the project, we take the kids out, they shop for grandma, they shop for mom and dad, they're buying presents, we're secret buying presents for the kids. Uh, we finish the day and all of us JCs go back to our hall and we wrap them. And then we also include some additional gifts. So like a Christmas dinner and so on and so forth. Two days before Christmas, we come and we deliver these gifts. We deliver the Christmas dinner and all of the Christmas cheer. So one of my dear friends and mentors in the organization, Mike Kanda, he, uh, he comes pick me up. We have all of these gifts, these baskets and everything for these families. We go to the first one and uh, we knock on a door and they open the door and hi, we're from the Redford JCs. We're here to deliver Christmas. And the dad that opens the door is just completely in shock, completely in awe. He ends up dropping to his knees. He starts crying. Uh, they were really, really on hard times. The family comes over. They start hugging him. They start hugging us. And now I'm not an emotional person, Dolph, but let me tell you, it got really windy on that porch. And uh, my like, my heart grew three sizes instantly that day. So it was one of those. It, it, sorry, if I can just jump in real quick. One of the things that just hit me in my head as well is this is 2009. The yeah. stock market has just crashed. The housing market is on fire and not in a good way. Unemployment is up. And literally, people are worried about survival and basic needs. Sorry, literally, it just hit me and I had to throw that out there. Yeah, and w I live in Michigan. And we are automotive nation and we know how the automotive companies were faring at that time. So, I mean, there were some real families in need. 
So this this first experience, now I'm like, now I've got the adrenaline, I've got the excitement. Uh, you know, I studied brain science, so I know my brain is flooded with dopamine at this point. I'm like, let's do this again. This was great. We go to the next house. It's the same impact. Families hugging us, tells us their story, and it's and it's heartbreaking. So we go back to the car, and we're getting ready to go to the third one. I've got this giant smile on my face. I'm loving every minute of this. And I look down at the map quest, and I'm like, oh, that's strange. This isn't a really, the next one. Yeah, I said map quest, right, 2009. So I look at this, and I'm like, this is strange. This is in a, a neighborhood I wouldn't have expected somebody would need help in. It's kind of one of the wealthier neighborhoods. So we get in the car and he's like, well, don't worry about it. Let's let's just see. So we start driving over and sure enough, we pull into the neighborhood that's attached to like the country club in the area. And I'm like, huh, this is really strange. And we pull down the street. I'm looking at the map. I'm looking up at the addresses. And finally, we find the house. It's this massive house with a beautiful BMW sitting in the driveway. And I'm like, my blood started to boil. Like I went from zero to a hundred in seconds. And I'm thinking to myself, did somebody take advantage of this? Like, did somebody just try to get a free Christmas? And I'm, I'm now thinking of all of those families that we weren't able to help. And I am just livid. And my buddy's like, calm down. I was like, no, this is, this is complete nonsense. I'm going to say something. And I march up to the door. I've got the bag in my hand. I'm not even sure what I'm going to do, but I get to the door and I knock. I just knock as loud as I can. And the dad comes to the door and I'm, I'm thinking of everything I'm going to say and what, how am I going to you know, communicate this or what am I going to do? And the dad opens the door and my entire perspective comes to a grinding halt and changes because there within eye shot right in the living room is mom and she's in a hospital bed and she's in stage four cancer and they have exhausted every treatment option and uh, she's home to basically finish out her days and it was something that I, I I was dumbfounded thank god my mentor was standing there with me because he's like hi, we're from the Redford JCs. We understand that you might be having some challenges. We're so happy to help out our neighbors and to deliver Christmas for you. And the exact same thing that happened in the first two. And I started crying right there. And I know that it was part of the experience, but I know it was also part of just the the, the guilt and the frustration I had. What if I'd have yelled at this person? What if I'd have said, what if I'd have behaved in the way that I was feeling? And I took that experience and it has helped me every day of my life since. We don't know what's going on behind somebody else's closed door. We don't know their experiences. We don't know why they may be behaving or what their behaviors may be perceived by the outside world. So sometimes we have to take a moment, take a deep breath and maybe just ask or maybe find out. And that was a life lesson that has carried with me and something I talk about when I talk about dealing with difficult people. And I'm so thankful for the years of servant leadership that I have learned through the JCs and the experiences that it had taught me, because that one is one that was honestly life-changing. So this leads me to the question that all of us in our careers, whether it's our board or a boss or a colleague or someone who reports to us, we all have these moments when we jump to this conclusion and we're like, all right, this is it. That's when we're the difficult person. What do we do so that we're self-aware enough when we stop ourselves before 
we start screaming or we start being aggressive? Yeah, this is a great question. Uh, it's, it's a difficulty. So I want you to think about it this way, maybe. We are human beings. We have this capability of cognitive, rational thoughts, and we also have very strong emotional uh, leanings or feelings. And our behaviors are a simple mathematical equation. Thoughts and emotions lead to actions. Now, when I say lead to actions, there's a space in between those two things. So that space is we might think something and then think the better of saying it. We may feel something and then think the better of doing it. But that space in between thoughts and feelings and the action, that is the space of behavioral intelligence. And what we do is try to help people develop and grow that space. So when they're choosing their behaviors, and yes, behavior is a choice. I can be angry or frustrated and not yell at that person. I can hold that back or I can speak up or advocate for myself. I have a variety of behaviors that I can choose to enact. Choosing the best one usually leads to our success or failure. So how do we do that? We work on creating that space. We work on mindfulness. We work on things like taking a deep breath. Uh, we work on looking at different pathways because maybe the one that we were so certain of, maybe that is looking from the outside in and what's actually going on on the inside has something different or is a completely different scenario than what we imagined. Those are those cognitive biases we have. So opening up that space by enacting some behavioral tools. So let's explore those behavioral tools more. Like which ones do you see people using most effectively? Yeah, I think, honestly, it's really kind of person by person. So one of the ways in which we coach or when we train or we consult, one of the things that we do is really encourage people to use a journal or a planner or anything else and track their behaviors. If I know that, say, Dolph, every time in a meeting you talk over me and that makes me feel here and I mark that down and I'm actually tracking those behaviors and say the first time it happens, I snap at you. And then we get into this big argument back and forth. And now all of a sudden, you and I have a sour relationship. We're going to see each other every single day. And if we have a sour relationship, guess what's going to happen? I'm going to have cortisol going through my system. I'm going to have adrenaline going through my system. I'm going to have toxic anxiety going through my system. And so are you. But at the end of the day, I need to manage that because it's my heart attack. And all of those chemicals, prolonged stress, can create situations where your immune system goes down, your metabolism goes down, your heart uh, takes an impact and a beating from it. So how do we essentially look at some of those tools or the best tools? By tracking our behaviors and finding out, okay, when I do this, this is a successful. When I do this, this is not successful. So I usually kind of relate it. You're going to laugh at this. The two best techniques that I have found, we learned in kindergarten, okay? We literally learned in kindergarten. Neuroscience backs this up. So behavioral intelligence, what we practice, is built on psychology, neuroscience, and communications. We do it in a fun way. You learned it in kindergarten. The first is take a deep breath. It's as simple as that. Now, if you're in the middle of an argument, don't go like... <sighs> You know, you're going to look really, really strange to the person in front of you. And that's where the second tactic comes in, which is count to 10. 
Only as adults, we do that by taking a step back and calling for a recess. You know, it's getting really frustrating between us, and I can understand that. This is an emotionally charged conversation. Why don't we take five minutes and let's come back to this? And then I take my five minutes and I breathe. I take those deep breaths, those deep oxygenization breaths that get into my lungs and filter out some of those other chemicals. If I'm able to pull that off, and that's a script, that's a script that I create. When Dolph makes me angry, I'll ask for a recess. And then I will come back after breathing and give what I have to say about that situation. That creates the space I need to get my limbic system, to get my reactionary emotional system under control. And hopefully we can come at it from a positive standpoint when we return from that recess. All right. I want to find out more. And there's two questions I want to ask you, and I'm going to try to get them in the right order, and I may not. So, you know, I'm a social worker by training. And in social work, it's all about like when you're in social work school, it's all about role play. So you role play stuff with your colleagues in social work school so that you hopefully do it right when you talk to your clients. And so part of me in my head was like, oh my gosh, I so bad want to role play this with Jay because what do you do when you ask for that five minute recess? And the person you're talking to says, no, this is really important, but I have something else to do. So we have to finish this right now. So my response to that is, I agree with you. This is incredibly important. I feel like everything that you have to say right now is is really important. Would it be possible if we maybe found a time afterwards? I'd be happy to accommodate that as best as I possibly could. So even if you are busy, I'll make it myself available so we can have the necessary conversations. If we're required to do this right now, I'd maybe just like a minute or two to get my thoughts together before I respond to what you're asking. So first of all, you totally should have been in this class in social work school. Let me just be clear about that. Second, so, all right, you get the minute or two or the five minutes. I know you said, okay, take the time and breathe. What do you actually do in that five-minute span that takes you from where you're at, which is not a good place, to a much better place? So here's an interesting thing, and I'll share it in a very, very common way that most people experience. If you've ever been in an argument with somebody and you're going back and forth and you're arguing and you're fighting, it could be over anything. It could be over whether grape jelly or strawberry jelly is better. And you're fighting, you're back and forth, and finally you've had enough. And you say, I'm out of here, I'm done. And you walk and you get about 10 steps away from you. You're like, ooh, I should have said this. If I'd have said this, I would have definitely won it. That is an example of you transitioning from your limbic system, which is the fear regulation, the anxiety, the amygdala, the the heart rate going up, you're not thinking as clearly as that part of the brain is firing, it's actually taking over your nervous system. It's taking over your cognitive cerebral cortex. When you start to walk away and danger is no longer present, now the logic system, the cerebral cortex, the prefrontal cortex, they start to kick in and we start to think more clearly or more rationally. And now we may come back to that, even if it's a minute, even if it's a minute breakaway, we may come back to that just a little bit smarter because there's going to be less cortisol pouring through the brain, less adrenaline, your hands might be less shaky, all of those things that we've experienced. So taking that minute will help. Another really interesting study in neuroscience has shown people are smarter when they laugh. Now, if you make that, you have to be very careful of this technique. 
Okay. So if you're in the middle of an argument being like, yeah, well, and you make a funny crack that's funny to you and not funny to them, that's not going to make anybody else happy. It's not going to solve the situation. But if you can find a way to go, Dolph, let's take a moment and just recognize we're arguing about grape jelly and strawberry jelly. I just, I found that a little bit humorous. I know that this is, we're, we're both emblazoned in this, but let's take a moment and just sort of relish in that for a second. And here's why I think that I can understand where you're coming from, but here's why, you know, I'm pushing for this or whatever it might be. So I have to share a quick story with you. And the reason I'm smiling is I had an experience not unlike this yesterday evening. So Lexi and I were facilitating a strategic planning meeting. And the way we do planning, it's a series of biweekly meetings for several months. And so we were, we were facilitating a meeting and the group was really stuck on whether there should be a period or a comma or no punctuation between these two words. I mean, really genuinely struck, stuck. And it's not a huge group, but, you know, I would say three quarters of the people really wanted a period and a quarter of the people really wanted a comma. And finally, I reached this point where I said, and, and this is completely true and authentic. So I attended Quaker meeting for about 20 years. And what a lot of people don't know about Quakers is they operate based on consensus. But it also means that the meeting that I attended did not replace its carpet for like a dozen years or something like that because there was not a consensus about whether or not the carpet needed to be replaced or what color the new carpet was going to be. And at some point, in order to just move it forward, there has to be someone who kind of steps in. And to me, that, that's almost like that rational brain you talk about, but there has to be someone that steps in. And this is kind of the role that, that we played where, where we sort of said, I kind of told that story. And then I said, you know, eventually how the meeting house got new carpeting was there were a couple of people who said, I'm not going to stand in the way of consensus. And, you know, we, this is not a vote, but we're all just going to reach alignment. I'm going to step aside. And would those folks who really are passionately committed to this other punctuation mark, would you be willing to step aside? And everyone's like, oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, let, we're done. I'm like, oh, great. Now it can move forward. But it is kind of like that that rational brain that you're talking about where you're like, all right, Let's, let's figure out how I can resolve this, not how I can win my punctuation fight. And that's a brilliant strategy that you executed there. And, and literally what you did was you pulled them out of the heat of the moment. When we have an argument with somebody or when we're fighting with somebody or if we have a distaste for somebody in our workplace, we tend to see everything that they do on a negative and we'll fight it, even if it's not the hill we want to die on. And that's a question that when we're working with difficult people that I say, is this the hill that you want to die on? Is this the thing that you're going to draw the line in the sand and say, you know, this is because sometimes it is right. We've all worked in a place where sometimes too far is too far or action must be taken. But is that really every time? Is that is this worth my heart attack? Is this the hill I want to die on? And it sounds like you executed that brilliantly. So that's wonderful. And I also have to share with you, like, you know, temper, it was easy to do because tempers were not flaring. People weren't angry with each other. They were just two camps. And, you know, I sometimes belong to the camp that just says, you know, if we can just find a way forward and not spend a lot of time on this one punctuation mark, we can spend more time on some other things. But so I also just need to say, full disclosure, like people were not being difficult. People just genuinely felt that one was better than another. 
Yeah, and, and sometimes that happens, right? We all have a difference in opinion. We could be, you know, I, I think that the company colors should be blue. Well, I think they should be red and so on and so forth. And eventually you have to find a place where you can come to a decision that's going to be accepted by the team or by the group or by the entire organization. And being able to kind of take a step back and say, okay, let's look at what this means. If we do this, is it reversible? Yes, no. Okay, well, then that's going to have one level of impact. Is this something that's personal? Yes, no. That's something that's going to have a different level of impact. Is this something that uh, we could find the difference or split the difference? Could we go purple? Is that, but when we're in blazoned in an argument or we're definitely too stuck on our side, sometimes we don't allow ourselves to see the third option or the fourth option, or we end up finding we're going to try to die on every hill. And then if say that I was a comma person and you're a period person, I think had you not facilitated that so well, and it ended up, you know, we're going to a vote and it's five to four periods win and I'm on the losing side. Well, let me tell you, human nature tells, especially because, and we've talked about the behavioral elements, which I'm sure we'll get to, but uh, my competitive nature, I'm like, all right, one in Dolph's court, what's next? <laughs> you know, let's see if I can even, and that is human behavior. And that's, that's why I love human behavior so much, because we as human beings don't always make rational decisions. We don't always do what's in our own best interest, let alone the best interest of all of us around us. That's why those predictions, those patterns, and everything else like that become super important. And so the other thing I have to reflect on, and this is maybe almost three decades ago in my career, I worked for, or I worked with an executive director who was, um, who was known for temper tantrums. The guy was about the age I'm at now, so, you know, early 50s. And literally, he would have just meltdown temper tantrums in small meetings when he was with just one or two other people who would work at the agency. And again, totally known for this. And I'm fresh out of social work school, and this kind of thing really just flustered me. And I would go, I would be flustered. I'd go back to my desk, and I'd be flustered most of the afternoon, and I would go home and still not feel right, and eventually, like, write him a three-page memo, which then only escalated it and resulted in, <laughs> in more, like, just at each other in, you know, in his office, not healthy for me, not healthy for him. Now, there was someone else I worked with, and he's probably long, long retired now because Webb was about the same age as my executive director. And if I was in the room with Webb and the executive director, and that happened. Webb would literally stand up and say, why don't we find each other when you're feeling a little calmer? And just walk out of the office. And it was funny because like, you know, at 22, not really funny, I guess, but at 22, uh, you know, I did not have the sense of self and frankly, the self-confidence to be able to say, why don't we just have, why don't we continue this when you're feeling calmer and walk out. Instead, I was like, okay, I'm going to take my stand here. And I'm going to, I'm going to metaphorically get the stuffing beaten out of me. Let me be clear. I was never hit, but you know, metaphorically get beaten down in that meeting and then go home, <laughs> write a memo and do it all over again the next day. That's, you know, and that's devastating. And, and I, 
I can relate. I've worked in that same culture. Uh, and kudos to your colleague who is able to kind of do that. So here's a couple of things that I would coach somebody if they found themselves in that situation. Try to use inclusive language. So if I say, Dolph, you are really upset right now. You're going to go, no, I'm not. And it's going to, you know, that, that barrier is going to come up. So one of the things that I like to do is reframe the language just ever so slightly. And I'll say something like, I can see this is really frustrating us. This is really creating a lot of tension between us. And now what I'm doing there is, if, have you ever seen like the movie, the old movie now, it's Independence Day where aliens come down and they start zapping the earth, right? Please don't call that an old movie, please. <laughs> I know, I know. I said this to my entrepreneurship class and they were like, no, we've never seen that. I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm losing my pop culture references. So that whole movie... Aliens come from the sky and all of a sudden the whole world unites, shares information, tries to help each other in order to combat this external enemy. When we look at conflict, if we can reframe our brain that the conflict is the enemy, not the person sitting across from us. The conflict is whatever uh, disagreement that we have, whatever difference of opinion, that is the enemy. And if I can create language, inclusive language that makes it you and me versus that enemy, I have a much better chance of coming at it and solving that problem rather than you and I escalating that problem. So when I, I look at that inclusive language, how might we be able to approach this differently? I can see this is creating a lot of tension in this room. How might we be able to look at this in a different light? In the event, and I'll tell you, I did have to kind of go nuclear once with somebody that was doing the exact same thing. And it was over and over. Retention in this organization was ground, it was gone. Like people were just leaving and leaving and leaving. Uh, they weren't able to bring people in. The culture was just awful. And one of the things that I asked, and this was, again, that kind of, it was a little brazen, but I hit my limit. It was the hill I was ready to die on at this point in time. And in the middle of that, I held my composure. I didn't get angry. I didn't bark back. And I asked, are these outbursts accomplishing what you'd like them to accomplish? And I didn't say anything. And the face got red. The, the, I thought the veins in the forehead were going to just blow out of the, like I honestly, I was, I was a little concerned for their health. And they turned and they stormed out. And like everybody else in the room is looking at me like, oh my God, I can't believe you just did that. And I, I had enough. It was an authentic question. And it couldn't have been much more than a half hour later that the same person that I just said this to came down to the office and is just like, I can't believe that you said that to me. And I said, yeah, I can't either. What on earth would have pushed me so far that I would take a risk with my career to ask you that question? And we had a really nice dialogue after that. And he apologized and he apologized publicly in the entire room. He goes, I get so passionate about this. I just, I believe in it so much that sometimes it's very hard for me to take a step back, especially when I'm here. Now, if I start looking at that, think about it. If somebody yells or gets angry or frustrated, are they angry person or are they passionate? If it's a friend, we might say that they're just super passionate. If it's an enemy, we call them angry. That's refocusing the thing that you do have control over, which is yourself. We can't control other people. 
So that was just one of those where I had hit my, this is my line in the sand. I'm fighting it. And whatever happens, happens. I, I love it. And we've all been there. And I'll share with you, there was one, I did at one point have a line in the sand in, in my life. And I had to say to, and it was, it, it was a different supervisor, but I had to say to a supervisor, um, if, and they did something that really undermined our relationship. And we talked about it and we talked it through and we got to a better place. And once we got to a better place, I said, I just need to let you know that if this happens again, I'm, I just don't have a choice. I'm going to have to leave. And it didn't happen for a few years, but it happened again a few years later. And the person was genuinely surprised. And I was like, I'm really sorry, but we talked about this and it's time for me to go. That can be super difficult. And, uh, you know, being able to, it's interesting to me because one of the, one of the things that you did there is exactly one of the things that I coach people on. And it's a brilliant strategy. This is my line in the sand in the future. Almost to what you said uh, about decision-making. So this is a way that I help, uh, that I've helped people make decisions. Set a timer in the future. What is your time in the future that you need to make this decision? Same thing for something like this. This is the point that my cup is full and that I have to do something about it. If you set that and you set those metrics that get you there, if you do this again, this is going to be the response, the behavioral response. You now had two, three, four, five years of space before you had to make that decision. It's no longer a irrational decision. It's no longer a non-calculated decision at that point. It's not an emotional decision. Here's the line in the future. If that line gets cost, uh, crossed, this is my behavioral reaction, and that's what I'm going to do. That's that's exactly what we're talking about, is planning those behaviors, choosing the right behaviors. I love that, Dolph. It's a great example. That's awesome. Now, Jay, I've got an off-the-map question that's not that far off the map, and it's a little bit of a selfish question because I'm probably going to answer it as well, although you and I have played different sports, similar but different sports. Now, so I know that you've played hockey and that you've done MMA, and so... It's interesting because, you know, you are the don't lose your cool guy. You are the, okay, you know, be self-reflective and control your behavior. So my question for you, because you've played two sports where, you know, it's pretty physical and you're pretty in your face. So my question for you is, what have you learned from hockey and MMA? Oh, it's a great question. So in both of those, obviously, very physical, as you say, and very aggressive sports. And, you know, when you're on the ice, I'm not exactly a, a super tall stature person. I'm five foot nine uh, and under two meters if you're an international audience. So as a hockey player and as a defenseman, as a as a bruiser, you wouldn't expect me based on my stature. Uh, and same is true in MMA. But there's a couple of things that I learned in in both hockey and MMA is number one, how you carry yourself is perceived by the outside. I wasn't the biggest, I wasn't the strongest, but people looked at me and it wasn't somebody that they were, I was not somebody that they wanted to get into the ring with and I wasn't somebody that they wanted to come down my side. And that was a lot of just the presence that I could carry. Where does that presence come from? From the way we position our body. So one of the things that I talk about in my keynotes is body language and how we can use body language to build successful relationships. So in the same way that uh, I had to, I learned that in hockey, I had to unlearn that in the business world because now all of a sudden I would come off as 
over dominant or aggressive or hyper competitive and things like that. And that, that really wasn't how I felt. But when somebody communicated that, like these are long carryovers, that's actually what got us into that study of behavioral elements and, and learning our core biological drives. You know, all my life, I've been a fire, a competitor, acquired, let's go, big results, let's win. And then realizing that obviously that's not a way to build strong, successful, bonded relationships in every aspect. That's not a way to uh, always, you know, be running at full tilt at all times. So that's really where our behaviors became a choice, understanding came from, but also taking that step back and saying, what value can I pull from those experiences? Okay, be bold, be brave, be courageous, step out there, make sure that you're leading a team with both character and competence because you could be the best person on the ice, but if you were a jerk in the locker room, no one's gonna listen to you. Uh, and vice versa, you could be the best person in the locker room, but if you don't have the competence, well, people aren't gonna put that C on your jersey. So making sure that you were a rounded out human being, uh, which is really kind of, tapping into all of our core elements, all of our core drives. I got to share with you, part of what I love about what you said was having the presence. So whether that's the physical presence or, you know, in our work lives, that professional presence where you're really confident in who you are. And I'll share with you, I'm even smaller than you. I'm five foot, three inches tall. And and I, I don't really compete much anymore, but I used to be uh, an international competitor in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. And I competed at 55 kilo, which is like 127 pounds. I'm a really, really small person. And I would get like to the pans and there would be 12 people in my division or whatever. And I'd look at these guys and I'd be like, oh my gosh, these guys are so small. And then my rational brain would go, this must be how all the rest of the world sees you. Because I walk around thinking, oh yeah, <laughs> I'm about the same height as everyone else all around me. I, it is so funny. We've lived so many similar experiences on that because I used to think I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm big. And then somebody reminded me, they're like, um, no, you're not. <laughs> and I was like, really? And, and that, that moment of clarity or that moment of, huh? Okay. Well, that, that's, that's definitely, I'll tell you though, if I saw you across the map for me, uh, size and stature, I have learned does not matter. It really does not matter. Watching and looking the way somebody carries themselves, the way that they move, the way that they position, much better indicator. And you position and carry yourself very strongly, not in a scary, aggressive way, but just very confidently, very strongly. And I love it. I, I, I love the engagement that I get from that. Well, thank you. I have to share that one of the other things I kind of learned, and this is a, there, it, there is an application for this, but I'm going to have to explain it. Um, for people that don't know wrestling, jiu-jitsu, rugby, hockey, there's this thing called cauliflower ear. And it's when, it's when your skin separates from the cartilage, it fills, it, it, that, that space fills with blood and your cartilage dies and you end up with this crinkly, crinkly ear. So when I first started competing, I was going to competitions and seeing all of these guys with like gnarly, gnarly cauliflower ear. And I would think, oh my gosh, they must be really tough. And, you know, sometimes it does mean you're really tough, but other times it just means that you really are not that good at escaping and you keep grinding your ear out of the escape. <laughs> so sometimes it can be deceiving. 
you know, that was something that uh, if you ever saw somebody really pretty in hockey and they were a fighter, you go, oh, OK, they're a good fighter. <laughs> it's not the person that's necessarily missing teeth. That means that they got hit. That doesn't mean that they did a good job in the other direction. <laughs> that is 100 percent true. Oh, my gosh, that's awesome. Well, Jay, thank you so much for joining us today. And I always, always want to make sure that I share with our listeners how they can find out more about you. And listeners, I'm going to give you two websites that I encourage you to go and check out. The first is coeuscreativegroup.com forward slash assessment. And so at that site, you can get a free behavioral elements quick assessment. And when I say quick, you can do it in six, seven, or eight minutes. So it's not going to take you a long time. And you're going to get some, as, as they used to say long ago and far away when Independence Day was in the theaters, you're going to get some news that you can use by taking that assessment. I also want you to check out Jay's Titan Skills Academy at titanskillsacademy.com. And if you're interested after you take that assessment or even before in honing your skills around interpersonal behavior and how you can learn to understand behavior and predict behavior, you should really check out Titan Skills Academy. And Jay is offering a special offer just for our listeners. If you use the promo code Successful Nonprofits, you can get 50% off. It's $30 a month or $300 a year. So at 50% off, that's like 15 bucks a month. Well, I'm going to have to do some heavy math here. I think $150 a year. So make sure you check out TitanSkillsAcademy.com. And we will have both of those at our show notes at SuccessfulNonprofits.com. Hey, Jay, thank you for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. This has been really enjoyable. And uh, thank you for listening, listeners. All right, listeners, if you are walking away from this conversation thinking, huh, maybe I should take up hockey. All right, well, I might be able to recommend some podcasts for that. But if you're thinking, huh, this was a really good episode. First of all, make sure you check out Jay's websites, but also there are two episodes I want you to consider downloading. The first is with Nate Regier, and it was episode 89 about how conflict can be good for your organization. Healthy conflict can be good for your organization. And the second is episode 111 with Cindy Fallon about how to address the disengaged board member. Because, you know, sometimes when we're dealing with that difficult personality, either they disengage or we disengage, and how you can re-engage them in some productive ways. That, listeners, is our show for the week. I hope that you have gained some insight to help your nonprofit thrive in a competitive environment. And every show closes out this way. You know, honestly, it seems pretty, pretty obvious to me, but the lawyers make me say it. I'm not an accountant nor an attorney, and neither I nor the Goldenberg Group, surprised because I'm not licensed to do this, neither provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. This podcast is for informational purposes only. I also always say, please don't listen to any podcast for tax, legal, or accounting advice. That's probably a mistake. So, if you find yourself in need of that type of advice, please find a credentialed, licensed, qualified professional in your area. And if you're not sure who to approach, reach out to me, and if I know someone in your area, I am happy to make the connection.